From South Dakota to New York, California to Vermont, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, President Joe Biden says there are 54 states, but that is the least of his tall tales. Genevieve Wood from the Heritage Foundation is here for a look at presidential gaffes. It's down to the wire in key U.S. Senate races across the country, and many are polling within the margin of error. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Funding for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is unconstitutional because it's not authorized by Congress. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports on what that recent court ruling means for the future of the Bureau. And on this week's American Radio Journal commentary, Colin Hanna from Let Freedom Ring USA examines the impact of non-response bias on political polling. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. President Joe Biden recently claimed that he spoke to the man who invented insulin, but that doctor died two years before Biden was born. The president has become known for his tall tales. Genevieve Wood is a counselor and spokesperson for the Washington, D.C.-based Heritage Foundation. She is here to walk through some of his whoppers. Genevieve, welcome to American Radio Journal. Genevieve, President Biden, known for his tall tales, you've written an entire article for this for Heritage Foundation and for the Daily Signal. Let's talk about some of the tall tales the president has told, and most recently, he seems to not have the arc of increasing gas prices quite right in a timeline. What is going on there? First of all, thanks for having me. Look, President Biden has said all along that the gas price issue was not a big deal. Nobody need to worry about it. They would all come back down. And now he's almost pretending that it never happened. But I think most people out there remember what gas cost about a year and a half ago. And depending on where you live in the, live in the country, it was well under a dollar or two dollars less than what you're paying today. But the president just doesn't want to talk about it. And when forced to, he'll blame you know, dirty energy or greedy gas station owners. But he himself never admits the fact that the inflation that's happened on his watch has driven up the cost of gas. The fact that he's done what he's done, shutting down our oil reserves that that's impacted the cost of gas. He never, ever references those. And unfortunately, most of the media doesn't ask him. What is with that? Usually the media is on a president whenever a president misspeaks, doesn't get the facts right. They certainly were on Donald Trump. That's right. What's with their giving Joe Biden a pass on all of these tall tales? I put this in my article that Rush Limbaugh used to say it was the media who, when politicians would lie, it was the media that kept them accountable. But that's just, that's no longer the truth if you're a left of center liberal Democrat. The media just doesn't ask the tough questions. And in many cases, it's not even just asking the questions. They let them just make statements that are blatantly false, that you just did a little homework, whether it's how many illegal immigrants we've let in the country, whether it's the cost of gas prices, whether it's why we've had inflation. You ask any of those questions, or they make any statements on that, there's plenty of ways to go fact check that. But the New York Times doesn't do it. ABC doesn't do it. CNN doesn't do it. They just let them stand. Let's drill down a little bit further here on the economy, Genevieve. A couple of weeks ago, the president claimed that the economy was really strong. Now, folks at the kitchen table are spending more on food. They go to the gas station. They're spending more on gas. Tell us a little bit about the president and how he sees the economy that's not consistent with how normal people see it. 
Well, I mean, for one thing, he talks about, oh, well, I've created 10 million jobs uh, since taking office. Well, first of all, no president creates jobs. The economy in which they're overseeing creates the jobs. But the reality is those are primarily jobs that people just got back after COVID receded and the lockdowns ended and people started taking their jobs back. But that's not that's not creating jobs. That's just people getting back what they had. And as you've rightly noted, the cost of gas is up. The cost of food is up. Just about everything you look at, the prices are up. And here's another sad thing. Credit card debt has ballooned. It's now over 20 percent. When you look at home ownership affordability, it's down 32 percent since uh, Joe Biden took office. Those aren't good numbers. When it's harder to buy a home, you're putting more on your credit card. That's, you know, I think a lot of voters are going to be thinking about that, those kinds of things as they enter the ballot box. And as we head to the election here in just a couple of days, the economy inflation appear to be the top concern of most voters. On inflation, the president actually said a couple months ago that inflation was at zero. How did he come to that conclusion? Yeah, <laughs> uh, some kind of funny new math, I suppose, is, is what he's using. Look, we, most of the inflation we have today is because when Biden came into office, he was very desperate to try to do something really big, and they did this $2 trillion, what they called a rescue plan, that put a lot of money in the economy that made it real flush with cash. And what happens when you do that? You get inflation and the cost of everything goes up. So inflation continues to go up. The average person is feeling it. And look, you might also recall that, that President Biden said, yeah, we're going to pass these big plans, the Inflation Reduction Act, all this good stuff. And guess what? Only rich people are going to pay for it. Somehow this money is not going to come from anybody else. It's only going to come from people making a, over $400,000. Colleagues of mine at the Heritage Foundation, uh, the number crunchers, the economic analysts have taken a look at all of that. And the reality is over half of the tax hikes are going to come from people making less than $200,000. And I don't know how many times Joe Biden has made that statement about only the rich are going to pay, but it's absolutely not true. Another tall tale. Apparently, Genevieve, the border is under control. Yeah, unless you ask anybody who's on the border, uh, people who live there, you talk to Border Patrol agents, or you just go check out the U.S. border website, which gives you numbers of how many illegal crossings have happened every month. You can go back year over year. Uh, and the reality is, since Joe Biden came to office, uh, over 2 million illegal immigrants have been apprehended at the border. And that's just in one year, in, in a 12-month period. Now, how many people actually got away? We don't have all of those numbers, but it's likely in the hundreds of thousands. And as you know, anybody who has looked at the border at all, who's paid any attention to the news, knows that it's completely being overrun. Uh, the agents there are not able to handle the numbers coming in. And the reason it's happening is because everybody south of the border has been told it's open. You get here, all you have to do is walk across, get caught, and you're in. The people south of the border are, there are a number of reasons many of them coming. Some of them are good, looking for better jobs. Uh, some of them are near do wells the people who would like to harm the U.S. That's not good. But whatever the reason, we can't have an open border and have a safe and secure country. That doesn't mean we're anti-immigrant. It means we're pro-American and we want to do immigration the right way. But that's not happening on Joe Biden's watch. Joe Biden has always said, Genevieve, that he was from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Of course, he represented the state of Delaware in the U.S. Senate. Now, however, he was apparently raised in a Puerto Rican community. <laughs> you really got to watch that clip. You can find it on. Uh, well, if you go to if you look at my story, we've got a hot link in there to it. But you could also look it up on YouTube. Yeah, he basically said that you know the state of Delaware is pretty small, but 
you know, 20% of the population was made up of different uh, minority groups, including African-Americans and Puerto Ricans and so forth. And then somehow that all went into like about two sentences later, uh, him saying, you know, so basically I was raised in a Puerto Rican community. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know who he was talking to. I don't know if it was a Puerto Rican audience. I don't know what kind of suggestion he was trying to make. But talk about stretching a truth or stretching a, a tall tale. That just wasn't there. And these tall tales continue without apparent vetting by the legacy news media. Genevieve Wood, a counselor and spokesperson for the Heritage Foundation, also frequent contributor to the Daily Signal, has written an article on this. So, Genevieve, tell us a bit about the Heritage Foundation, Daily Signal, and where folks can go to read this and other articles. Well, the Daily Signal, and you go to dailysignal.com, dailysignal.com, it is the media platform of the Heritage Foundation. And the Heritage Foundation is an organization about to celebrate its 50th birthday next year. It's the largest uh, privately supported think tank in the country, uh, probably in the world. So I would encourage folks to check it out. And you can find all that research and information at heritage.org. Genevieve Wood of the Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal. Genevieve, thank you for taking time to be with us. Great to be with you. At the Club for Growth, Scott Parkinson, all year long as the midterm elections have unfolded, has been keeping an eye on major races in states all across the country. The general election is now just about upon us, and Scott is back with us. Scott, good to have you here. Always great to be with you, Loman. Thanks for having me. We look at this election that is actually underway with early voting, mail-in voting in many states. What is the lay of the land, Scott? We know Democrats currently control the House of Representatives. We're even Stephen at 50-50 in the Senate. Republicans looking good for control of the House. What about the Senate? Tens of millions of people throughout America have already cast their ballots with early voting, and a lot of people are mailing in their ballots right now as they're making final decisions on who they want to support in the midterm elections. We think that the United States Senate is in really, really good position right now. We've seen candidates over the last month run very strong campaigns in states like Nevada and North Carolina and Wisconsin and Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania, your home state. I Honestly, I I just feel like right now Republicans are going to be sitting pretty with about 53 or 54 seats when it's all said and done. But we got to remember, there's going to be some really close races. There's going to be a handful of states that take a while to count their ballots. Think about Alaska, for example. Kelly Chewbacca is taking on Lisa Murkowski, but there's ranked choice voting in Alaska, and that's going to require several weeks of counting the ballots to figure out where everything shakes out and whether or not Lisa Murkowski is defeated by the conservative Kelly Chewbacca in that race. Then down in Arizona, we've we've seen what's happened in the 2020 election. People feel pretty good about the reforms, the electoral count reforms that they've enacted within the state legislature through Governor Ducey. But time will tell in, in terms of how that race shakes out, if it's close for Blake Masters against Mark Kelly, with if the media and and the electoral prognosticators are willing to call the race one way or the other. And then in Georgia, we got to be mindful that if Herschel Walker doesn't reach 50%, even if he is leading Raphael Warnock, that race would go to a runoff, and in four weeks, we'd have a brand-new election head-to-head with Walker and Senator Warnock. So those are just a few states that I think are going to be percolating out there But, you know, in the House of Representatives, Republicans are poised to win and win big. 
And what I think we need to start doing is preparing the current incumbent members for this big fight that's going to be coming up in December on an omnibus appropriations bill. We also are going to be keeping an eye on the White House here, Scott. If Republicans, as is expected, take control of the House, likely to take control also of the Senate, what is the response of the White House going to be? Are they going to try to enact a large part of their agenda here in this lame duck period between now and when the new Congress takes office? Yeah, well, there's a bunch of things that haven't gotten off the Biden agenda, whether it's the marriage issue or if he wants to continue to do things to fund sort of the Green New Deal, Biden recession agenda that they've really been putting forward for almost two years now. And if he loses complete control of Washington, he's going to feel a lot of pressure to try to jam things through at the very end here in a partisan basis. And everything would potentially ride on an omnibus appropriations bill or on a continuing resolution through what are are called anomalies, meaning they're unrelated to appropriations, but they tack it on to almost like a Christmas tree package. We've heard about it here before. We've talked about it several times on your show in past years. And if the Biden administration's unable to get things done in the lame duck session, I think we can also count on them to be preparing a brand new wave of executive orders to try to enact their radical agenda. And this is why the lame duck session and preventing an omnibus appropriation is so important. If we can just pass a clean CR that puts us into January or February and gives those new Republican majorities the leverage that they need over the administration to hold them accountable by utilizing their Article One purse powers, the power of the purse does belong with the Congress. So if we defund these executive orders, that the Biden administration is putting forward, we can put the pressure on those Democrats to either, number one, shut down the government over all the radical things that Joe Biden is trying to do by filibustering legislation in the Senate, or we can actually enact good conservative policies and appropriations through an omnibus appropriation or regular order in the new session of Congress. So it's something I'm really going to be watching a close eye on really, really concerned about the things that Biden's going to try to jam in there in the last minute. We've seen this happen time and time again, where some Republican lawmakers will say, well, let's just clean up the barn or clear the decks for the new Congress. We don't really want to deal with the debt limit increase. We don't really want to deal with appropriations. But if you take the debt limit increase and appropriations off the board, then we're basically taking two of the bullets in the gun off the table Uh, in terms of what we can actually effectively use as live fire exercises to enact law in 2023. The final must-pass piece of legislation that I think is on a lot of people's mind is the Farm Bill, which is up for a new five-year reauthorization. The Farm Bill typically carries the food stamp program, also known as SNAP, and it will also reauthorize many of the crop insurance and agricultural subsidies that the ag industry throughout America utilizes. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. And next week's program, you're going to want to tune in because we're going to talk about who won and who lost and what's still to be decided. Scott, tell us a bit about the club. The Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. We have a membership pack and a super pack that get engaged in elections all throughout America, supporting 
the best free market economic conservatives that are going to defend liberty, opportunity, and prosperity in America. If anybody wants to check out the candidates that we're supporting in the midterm elections, it's not too late to help us get over the finish line. Check us out at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, looking forward to talking with you next week. Thank you. Thank you. A federal appeals court has ruled funding for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is unconstitutional, which calls into question the legality of rules it has implemented on the financial sector. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine has details. When the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created as part of the massive Dodd-Frank banking regulation bill back in 2010, it was given a funding structure unlike any other federal agency. And that unique structure, it turns out, might also be unconstitutional. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Baim with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, look... I have to apologize in advance. We're going to get a little technical here. We're going to get down in the nitty gritty of the way federal bureaucracies get their money. And it's not always as straightforward as you might think. It's not that Congress just appropriates money. And that is sometimes a bit of a legal issue, a constitutional issue. And that's exactly what happened last month. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, I think, was right to notice And to point out that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has this unique kind of weird and borderline maybe unconstitutional funding structure because the agency doesn't get its money from Congress. It actually gets its budget from the Federal Reserve. But before we get into the technical details here, let's cover the basics. The the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a three-judge panel on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, ruled in October that the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's structure is unconstitutional because Congress has no control over the agency's budget. Again, it's funded entirely by the Federal Reserve. Under the terms of the Dodd-Frank law that created the CFPB, it is entitled to receive a budget totaling up to 12% of the Federal Reserve's annual operating expenses. And this is the important part. The Federal Reserve is not allowed to refuse its requests for funding. So Judge Corey Wilson, in this ruling from the Fifth Circuit, said that Congress's decision to abdicate its appropriations power under the Constitution to cede its power of the purse to the Bureau violates the Constitution's structural separation of powers. At issue in all of this is a lawsuit that was originally filed all the way back in uh, 2017, shortly after the CFPB made a rule that affected payday lending companies. So this is all, you know, layers upon layers in this lawsuit. The judges invalidated that rule, despite noting that the agency fully had the authority to issue that rule, but they invalidated it because they found that without its unconstitutional funding, the Bureau lacked any means to promulgate the rule, effectively saying that the CFPB wouldn't be able to do anything if it didn't have a budget, and it shouldn't have a budget because its budget is unconstitutional. Now, that's an outcome that opens up big questions about the constitutionality of literally everything that the CFPB is charged with doing and everything that it has done in the decades since it was created. In short, even if the agency has the authority to regulate wide swaths of the financial sector, it cannot do so unless Congress adjusts its funding mechanism. Even as she criticized the ruling as lawless and reckless, Senator Elizabeth Warren acknowledged in a series of tweets last month that the courts were, quote, throwing into question every rule that the CFPB enforces. Indeed, that's exactly what they're doing here, and it's exactly what should happen here, because 
That's exactly what should happen when a federal agency is blatantly and by design violating the fundamental rules for how the federal government is supposed to operate. That is, in short, exactly the role of the federal court system. Defenders of the CFPB, like Vox legal correspondent Ian Milheiser, have described last month's ruling from the Fifth Circuit as, quote, relying on a novel reading of an obscure provision of the Constitution. But hold on a second. The obscure provision is Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution, which gives Congress the sole authority over setting the budgets of federal agencies. And the novel reading of Article 1 is, well, the plain text of Article 1, which gives Congress the sole authority over setting the budgets of federal agencies. Now, the CFPB has responded to this court ruling by saying that uh, the courts have ignored the fact that there are several other federal agencies that are funded outside of the congressional appropriations process. And this is true. There are, including the Federal Reserve Bank, for example, and agencies like the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and the Federal Housing Finance Agency. None of the, the budgets for those things are appropriated through Congress every year. But the CFPB made exactly that argument in the case to the Fifth Circuit, and the court dismissed it out of hand. In fact, the court's ruling says that that argument mixes apples with oranges. Because Congress did not merely cede control over the Bureau's budget by insulating it from annual or other time-limited appropriations, this is what the court says, but it also ceded indirect control by providing that the Bureau's self-determined funding be drawn from a source that is itself outside the appropriations process. Judge Wilson called this a double insulation from Congress's purse strings that is unprecedented across the government. Even among other self-funded agencies, the Bureau is unique. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's perpetual, self-directed, double-insulated funding structure goes a significant step further than that enjoyed by any other federal agency. So no, the CFPB is not like other federal agencies that are funded independent of Congress's regular review and appropriations process. It has a wholly unique structure, a wholly unique structure that was deliberately designed to protect it from political influence, yes, but had the consequence of making it completely unaccountable to any other portion of the government, including Congress, which has the final say, per the Constitution, in how much money any federal agency receives. And it is long overdue for that unique funding structure to be getting the congressional scrutiny that it deserves. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. You can check out more of our coverage of the federal bureaucracy and everything else going on around the country this week as we gear up for Election Day at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Non-response bias. It is a factor causing many polls to underestimate Republican support. Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA examines the impact on this American Radio Journal commentary. We keep hearing that several marquee races for Senate and Governor in next week's midterm elections are very close, within the margin of error. It will be interesting to see how these seven races come out. Wisconsin Senate, Wisconsin Governor, Arizona Senate, Arizona Governor, Pennsylvania Senate, Georgia Senate, and Nevada Governor. This week's polls in all seven races are within two points. The Republican candidate is ahead in five of them, and the Democrat is ahead in two, but that's not really significant because the average margin of error in all seven polls is roughly 4%. 
The key question for us to look at today on American Radio Journal is whether these polls are reasonably accurate or if they're off by more than their margin of error. I'll make a bold prediction. In at least five of the seven races, the results won't be close at all. The winner's margins of victory will be greater than the poll's margins of error. Furthermore, I'll predict that the difference between this week's polling estimate and next week's actual results will be in favor of the Republicans. What leads me to make this prediction? There's a factor that the pollsters are failing to include in their elaborate statistical models, and that factor is the rapidly declining response rate to pollsters' calls, whether they use live calls or automated ones. Furthermore, there appears to be a meaningful difference between Republicans and Democrats' response rates. Nate Cohn is the New York Times' chief political analyst, and he understands statistical patterns affecting polling better than anyone else I know. He may lean personally in a liberal, progressive, leftward direction in his narrative comments, but he's enough of a professional to be intellectually honest in his statistical analysis. Here's what Cohn said just a few days ago about what's known as non-response bias in this year's polling, and I'll quote, In the aftermath of the 2020 election, most pollsters concluded that the polls probably underestimated Donald Trump because of something called non-response bias. Mr. Trump's supporters were less likely to respond to surveys than Joe Biden's supporters, even among people who had the same demographic characteristics. While non-response bias is challenging to prove, there was one possible marker of it in the New York Times, in the data in 2020. White registered Democrats were more than 20% likelier to respond to their surveys than white registered Republicans. In our final wave of Senate and House polls in the last few days, non-response bias looks as if it's back. Overall, white registered Democrats were 28% likelier to respond to our Senate polls than Republicans, a disparity exceeding that from our pre-election polling in 2020. The wide disparity in Democratic and Republican response rates was most likely symptomatic of a deeper non-response bias. Biden voters, regardless of their party, were probably likelier to respond than Trump voters. This drove up the Democratic response rate, but it also did more than that. It meant that there were too many Biden Democrats, too many Biden Republicans, too many Biden Independents. Waiting by party wasn't enough. This time around, the response patterns by district and state certainly raised the possibility that there's a similar challenge. And that's the end of the quotation of Nate Cohn. One theme that's often heard on inaccuracies in polling is that most polling sample bases are biased towards Democrats, that there are simply not enough Republicans in the samples. Nate Cohn's analysis suggests that the problem does not lie in the mathematical distribution of polling respondents, but rather in the psychology of polling respondents. 
perhaps because of the relentless demonization and denigration of Republicans in the media, many Republican respondents don't tell the truth about their preferences, so they behave differently in casting a ballot than they do in responding to pollsters. If Cohn is right, and I believe he is, then the actual voting patterns of Republicans will be stronger than the polling would indicate. So look for strong Republican results across the board next Tuesday. And in my next American Radio Journal commentary, I'll report on my own predictions in the seven races I highlighted. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KKBG-FM in Hilo, Hawaii, KLEO-FM in Kahalu, Kona, Hawaii, along with KAPA in Hilo, Hawaii. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.